Well, welcome everybody to Wednesday night at Water of Life. We are so excited to have you here with us tonight. My name is John, I'm one of the pastors on staff. And just wanna let you know that uh, we are very excited that you're here with us. We've been praying for this. We love uh, this Wednesday night experience that we have together. So just to let you know, uh, we're gonna have some worship together and then we're gonna have a Bible study through the book of Acts, which is awesome. Uh, great for right now in this time. And then at the end of that, we're gonna have a, an interactive time where we're taking your questions live. And so any questions you have during the study about the Bible study in Acts, uh, we would love to hear those questions. You can post those online on the live stream chat, or you can email them to onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org. That's uh, onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org. We would love to hear your questions, uh, all kinds of questions about what we're studying and what's going on right now. Um, also want to let you know, I know there's a lot of questions. We're having people, I had people texting me all day today asking me questions about when are we re reopening, how are we reopening, uh, talking about what's going on in our world, in our government, in our culture right now. And so if you have questions about what's happening or the reopening process, go over to wallupdates.com, uh, wolupdates.com, and there's information there posted all the time on a regular basis, as well as Pastor Dan's daily uh, devotionals that he posts, and he has a lot of information in those updates as well. And so I wanna encourage you uh, to uh, get your hearts ready. Uh, we're gonna pray in just a moment, but I had a, a passage that I wanted to read for us. Um, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful, it is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. And so I've always thought about the word of God, the Bible, as a sword, and, and it's, an, it's a defensive weapon, it's an offensive weapon. But sometimes I think the Bible is also a scalpel, and God uses it to uh, do surgery on our hearts. And so my prayer today is gonna be that we allow God's word to do surgery on us. We allow his spirit in to our innermost parts and to allow him to do his work. So let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your spirit. We are so um, spoiled in a way to have such access to our God, to our Father, to the one who loves us, to the one who created us. And so, Father, today, we just present ourselves to you. We say, whatever you wanna do in our lives, whatever conviction you wanna, you wanna give us, however you wanna do surgery on our hearts, God, we say yes. Whatever you need to do, whatever words you need to say to us. And Father God, we pray that during this time of worship that we would just allow ourselves to listen to you, to open our minds, to open our hearts, to not be distracted by the things around us, the things in our homes or wherever we're listening, but God, that we would be fully yours, fully engaged with your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together. Amen, well happy Wednesday. It's an honor to worship with you guys. We're gonna throw it back just a little bit, but these words are straight from the Bible, so let's sing out these truths together. We sing like this. Listen and lift up our hands For the joy of the Lord is our strength
There's no one above you, God. wait on you tonight. We want to wait on your presence. We know that in your presence we find life, we find joy, we find peace. And so Lord, would you come into every household that's with us and meet them right where they are. Holy Spirit, would you come? We wait on you, Lord.
Father, we do want to just stop and ask tonight in this moment that we would let those words sink in as we jump into your word, that we would stop and we would allow those moments like this to speak to us, that, that would you be our way maker? Would you be the person that speaks messages into our spirit? You gave your apostles message. You want to give us messages that we're supposed to carry with us as you call us to reach the world around us. And so, God, as we dive into your word today, would you help us? Help us to hear your heart. Your heart is pouring forth in, the, in your words, in your text, in your, in, your, in your literal words that you've given to us. It's pouring forth, wanting to speak new life into us, to change us, to recreate us. And as Paul says, to give us new life and make us new beings. And I pray that tonight for each of us, no matter where we are, on our phone, watching this a later date, sitting at home on our TV, that you for those of us that are home alone, that you would reach across time and space and meet us like you promised us you always would. So right now we give you this time. We just say thank you, thank you, thank you. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Well, um, it is Wednesday night, but I am not Pastor Dan. Um, he is taking the evening off, and I'm going to be hanging with you guys for uh, tonight. And so it's great to be with you all. Um, <clears throat> For the last several weeks, if you're just joining us, um, well, first of all, my name's Shane, and I'm one of the senior staff pastors, and I teach from time to time here, and it's great to be with you, but um, if you're just joining us, one of the things that uh, maybe you don't know is for the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of Acts, and so I'm going to pick that up. Um, normally, this is where we do updates and stuff, and I know John kind of pointed to that, and we've been really trying to keep you up to date every single day about how our reopening's looking, et cetera, et cetera, and so... I know that we are all looking for, forward to a chance to be together, to worship together, and to celebrate together. And I know that that is looking different every day. And so stay tuned to Wall Update so we can keep you up to date about what those things will look like. So, Now, as I said before, if you're just kind of joining us, you haven't been part of the conversation and the story. And we'll get you caught up to speed because we're going to jump in where we left off last week in Acts chapter uh, 10, we, we finished all the way through verse nine, or excuse me, chapter nine. And so I want us to pick up there, but before we do that, there's a couple thoughts I wanted to throw out to you before we did that, because they're really important to us understanding the text, what's happening, and how we got here. So if you're uh, just joining us, a couple of little backstory for those of you who've been around for a second, you can go grab a cup of coffee, whatever it is that you wanna do, or if you can keep eating dinner. But the thing that you might wanna keep in mind as we walk through this is this. Um, first of all, um, chapter nine really is kind of this uh, pivotal moment in the text. What happens in chapter nine is that Paul has this radical encounter with God. In fact, Jesus, it says, meets him on the road to Damascus and begins to prepare the way for something radical and different to happen that hasn't happened yet. Now, if you've been with us, you know this, but just for a little reminder, Luke is giving us the story, both in his gospel of Jesus' story, and then in Acts, as the author of Acts, he's giving us a picture of the birth of the church. And as the church is being born, something unique is happening. And what that unique thing is, is that God is beginning to take this thing that he promised was going to be a long time ago, all the way back through Abraham, was going to go beyond the people of Israel, and that the people of Israel would be a blessing to the entire world. Now, we're going to pick up there in a couple of seconds, but... If you're just joining us or maybe just you haven't thought about it, as we go through our time together, John's going to join me in a few minutes as we go through this text. And as we get time towards the end of our time of teaching, we're going to take some live question and answer. And so if you have questions that we go through here, make sure you write them down. Um, if you are online on one of our online platforms, say hi to our pastors. They love getting to chat with you and pray with you. So if you have prayer needs uh, tonight, please make sure if you're live with us, make sure you jump on there and let them know. Also, we have people live on our office that can take your calls right now as well. Another thing to just keep in mind, if you don't have access to our chat rooms, you can email us at onlinepastor at wateroflifecc.org and send your questions in there and we'll jump to them at the end of our time together today. So right about now, we are seeing Luke write at about 70 or 80 AD. So um, some of actually the events that he's talking about, most of them took place way before he wrote them. But he has gathered all these things as we hear him talk to us about in Luke, the very beginning of Luke, his gospel, that he's gathered these things together to make a, 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 an account that is reliable. And you begin to see that as it unfolds. In fact, he's highlighting the really important things. And the thing that we saw last week, that we walked through last week is this, is that God is beginning to pave the way for the church to no longer just be Jewish. But in fact, he is beginning to pave the pathway for all the world to receive a savior. 
And here's how that picks up. And we'll get through this in a couple seconds here. But, and if you want to open up your Bibles, you can to chapter 10. And we'll get there in just a quick second. But there's a couple things that are so important. Because remember in Acts chapter 1, what's key here, this is what's going to happen. We're going to see some foreshadowing in Acts chapter 1 that begin to speak into Acts chapter 10 and for the rest of Acts. And ultimately for the rest of the New Testament. Because what happens here is so important. Because chapter 1, Jesus is leaving and gives them a command. That you're going to go to all the earth, Judea, Samaria and all the earth to share about my story of redemption, salvation, how I came to bring back and buy back life for people and to forgive the sin of the world. But what's so interesting is that all the world doesn't happen quite yet. It doesn't happen instantly. God does something so specific, and I think this might be a message for you and I as we walk through this together tonight, is this, that somewhere in time, God wants to use us to do specific things. And we don't always know what they are. And in fact, oftentimes while we're in the middle of those moments, we don't even know that they're happening. And I think you see that happening. If you've been tracking with this, you see that happening with Peter. You see that happening in just a minute. You'll see, begin to see that with Paul. And right now you'll see that with a guy named Cornelius. You don't really understand what God's doing, but he's doing something significant with him. Now in Colossians chapter 1, we get a little picture. Because Colossians chapter 1 is written just before this just about 15 or 20 years before this. Colossians chapter one says this, we give thanks to God. And this is a picture of what has radically happened because as this is unfolding, you gotta remember just a few years after this, just 30 years after Jesus has gone, after Jesus has gone back to heaven, something significant has happened. The gospel message through Paul and through Paul's disciples in the Mediterranean world into the known world had spread far and wide. In fact, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, we give thanks to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are praying for you always since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love which you have for all the saints. Because the hope laid up in you, for you in heaven of which you have previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as sin in all the world is also constantly bearing fruit and increasing, as it has been doing in you since the day that you heard of it and understood the grace and the truth. And all the world, get this, and all the world, all the known world, Paul's inferring that far and wide people, just 30 or 40 years after Jesus is gone, maybe even less, people are beginning to hear about the Jewish carpenter that became a rabbi, that changed the world, that Rome and the people put to death and that didn't stay dead. And so as we dig into this text, there's a couple back, one more backstory that's really important. Most of us know at this point because of the story of Jesus that Rome is occupying Israel. But what we don't often understand is the tension, the angst, the anger, uh, I'd say the hate, would be a good word to use, the hate that is taking place between both the Jewish and the Roman people. Now, there's a couple of things that are important because remember, Rome is ruling over Israel. And while they're ruling, really, really ruling over almost the entire known world at this point, but as they're ruling over Israel, there's a couple of weird dynamics that are taking place because Israel is proud. Israel thinks of itself as being God's chosen people. And for the most part, look down their noses. This is... This is, a gener this is a very big generality. But look down their noses at people who aren't Jewish. So you have this ruling elite class of the Romans who are holding this, holding, really holding Israel hostage through military power who've come in, they've established, they've built temples to their gods, they've built 
fortresses in their communities, and they've been ruling for years and years and years, and have established themselves as a ruling governance over them. They tax, they take what they want to take. And the thing that's so important to understand is that the tension that is going to come to a head here is really important. Because Peter is going to go meet with somebody that's a leader of the Roman military. And while, while the, we'll never quite understand the kind of magnitude of this moment, we could try to begin to understand it a little bit when we think about this. Because if we don't put this in context and we don't, as we begin to read chapter 10, it's just not going to make sense for us what the weight of what was happening is. So if we don't understand the weight, really the, the significance of it for Peter, we're going to read right past that and not fully understand what's happening and what God is doing or how God is moving in this moment. But the story unfolds on itself and continues. And the story says this, and if you want to follow along, you can. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, so it might sound a little bit different. You're leading a different translation uh, tonight. But there's a couple of things that kind of set forth, and I'm going to read a little bit here, and we'll stop, we'll talk, and then we'll come back and forth. It says this in chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived an ar a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Now, obviously, Luke in the very front end is giving us a big picture of who this Cornelius guy is. But before we go any farther, there's a couple things that what his detail, Luke is so masterful giving us detail, his detail is telling us is a couple of really important things. First of all, that he's not just a, a legion leader, which would mean he was leading at least 100, but most likely up to 600 men. Not only is he just leading that, but he is in Caesarea, which is really where all of the elite Roman officials would want to live and would live as long as they weren't out on assignment somewhere in Judea and, and as they would call Palestine. And what you got to understand is that because he's there, there's something that's really indicative to us. He's important. He's valuable. He's smart. He's successful. But yet he has a really interesting dynamic happening here. His entire, they tell us, his entire household is following Jesus. Now, uh, if you go with us to Israel on a trip, someday we might get to go again. If you go to Israel with us on a trip, you actually get to visit Caesarea Maritime, as it's called. And we actually have some pictures of it uh, today for you to take a look at. Now, this is facing south. What you're seeing right now is Caesarea Maritime. This is actually um, a picture of the coastline. Uh, much of the harbor and the things that were present during this time are now missing in this picture because they've washed into the ocean. In fact, part of what you're seeing there is um, even a palace. Um, this is where Pontius Pilate would have spent a lot of his time uh, during this period and leading up to his, uh, his governorship of Israel. And you can see just kind of the infrastructure in the next picture. You actually see some more of that. You can actually see the intricacy of some of the city, the town, the markets that were there. And this is generally the area that Peter is going to travel to in this moment. And this is the area that Cornelius is from. This isn't just kind of a, a, a fictional place. This is a real place that a real guy lived who led real men in battle, who led real Roman soldiers who were oppressing and holding the Israelites captive. Now, the Hebrew people and the Israelites in these moments, the Jews, are really struggling to understand what this dynamic is. And just a few years, and maybe just before this, they've been at war. And this is so important to say. The Jewish war revolt, really ended with the temple being destroyed, but goes on until, until 74 AD. And the thing that's so, and Josephus tells us this really clearly, the thing that's so important about understanding that is the tensions are still high. 
We think Luke probably wrote this passage, uh, this, this, his text in Acts, somewhere between 70 to 80 A.D. So if he's writing that, remember this, the tensions are extremely high. So as we walk through this, you got to remember, Jews and Romans aren't friends. They would do business to profit themselves, but they aren't friends. You didn't make friends. You're going to see that happen here in just a second. But let's carry on. We'll get, we'll get kind of another picture here in just a second as we walk through the next couple of passages here. There's something else that you're going to see here. That Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 has his first encounter with a Gentile as well. And like Peter, his first encounter with a Gentile is going to be a Roman uh, centurion. It says, one afternoon in verse 3, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision, Cornelius had a vision, in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said, and Cornelius stared at him in terror, as I think all of us would if we recognized that there was a real angel really in our room. We always think angels are pretty, we want statues and pictures of them, and then one shows up and it's, every time I show, they show up, they're a little bit terrifying in the text. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. <clears throat> An angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. This is important. This is a guy who is wrestling, who later we'll hear called a God-fearing man. Someone who's chasing after God. This is, listen, this is a lot like the people that live next to us, the people that maybe even live with us, the people that don't know Jesus but are exploring. Some of you might just be here trying to figure out what all this is about. This is those people, the people that are trying to live well, trying to figure out, but haven't quite committed to Jesus yet. This is, he, Cornelius is one of those people, but he hasn't had that opportunity. He hasn't been placed in front of him. To this point in history, remember that Christianity as they knew it, the Jewish sect of Christianity that was based out of Jerusalem and was led by the apostles is only based around Jews at this point. You gotta understand, this is just for Jews. They haven't begun to incorporate Gentiles. This isn't part of their story. It isn't kind of like a multinational movement. This is just a Jewish movement, a Jewish sect from that one Jewish carpenter turned rabbi who created all those problems. And so as we look at this, he, he's a God-free man. We see that in just a second. But we begin to see that he's already got a hold of God's heart here. And God's heart is for the poor. God's heart is for others. Listen, he's generous. This is so important because from the very beginning, Cornelius has captured God's heart. Even beforehand, he's trying to figure this out. He's doing good things. He's living well. And here's what he's figured out. He's figured out that, that thing that maybe we should. That our calling isn't to gather and have social clubs or Christian social clubs. Our calling is to live out and to care for other people. That God's heart is always for people. You know, Jesus actually says this when he comes in contact with his first Gentile. He says this, he says, his first Gentile contact that's recorded. He says in Matthew chapter eight, uh, Matthew records that he prophesied, meaning Jesus, that many shall come from the east and the west and would sit down with Abraham, meaning the Israelites, Isaac and Jacob, in the kingdom of God. Listen, he says this to a Roman centurion and just 30 or 40 years later, Peter may, oh, probably less than that. Luke is actually recording this 30 or 40 years later, but Peter is having this experience, the experience Jesus just years before prophesied would happen. This is so important for us to get this because this paves the way for all the world to hear. 
These two passages, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, and then again in chapter 15, begin to pave the way for what's supposed to happen and what's going to happen. And it's so key for us to wrap our heads around this because there is no church without these experiences happening. This isn't a passing miracle. This is a transformative act about God trying to move among people. Don't forget that. Don't miss this moment. This is so transformative. As you read this, it should move us because it's full of uh, racism. It's full of elitism. It's full of tension. It's full of hate. But it's also full of reconciliation and redemption. And the story goes on. And says this, that what is it when he asked? He said, your prayers and your gifts of the poor have been received as an offering. Now, this is the angel giving instruction. He goes on in verse five. Now send some men to Joppa or Jaffa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying there with a man named Simon who is a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called out to two his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened and he sent them off to Joppa. Now, immediately, this guy has an encounter with an angel, and the angel gives him specific things to do. Now, I don't know about you, but these are the kind of words from God I like. Specific, directed, and you hear it, the guy's there, go do this. Yes, sir. Now, you got to understand this. He's having a radical encounter because he's pursuing God and he's trying to figure this thing out. He's a God-fearing man. Meaning this, this this is really the language that we see throughout Acts from Luke, about people that are living well, that are pursuing God, that haven't quite discovered Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. And verse three, the angel doesn't speak about Jesus. That's left for Peter. And ultimately it's left for us. What we find always is that God has called us as people to be partnered with him, to heal, save, redeem, and to share his story. And the thing we're gonna see in just a second is that God wants to use Peter and Cornelius' life But don't miss for a second here that God wants to use Cornelius in Peter's life as well to show him what he's up to, to show Peter what he wants to do in the future. He gives him some instructions of what to do in verses five through eight. And then we pick up uh, in verse nine. If you want to follow, I'm going to keep continue reading verse nine. It says this. Then the next day as Cornelius messengers were nearing the town. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was still being prepared, he fell into a trance. Might be a better language or better word used here. He began to have a vision because he was still present. We still believe in the way he kind of recounts this experience. He still has his faculties about him. He didn't lose control of himself. He begins to have an experience with God. Maybe like a vision, more like a vision, but one he's still present, begins to see into the supernatural and God begins to show him something. And here's what he sees. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds, and then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill them and eat. Now, Peter likes to do things the hard way, so Peter's gonna go through this the hard way as well. He's gonna go through this another couple times before he begins to figure out what God is trying to do. And the thing we gotta catch here, just really quick, is that during this time, and we're going to see this just like, the men from Caesarea are on their way to meet Peter. In fact, they're going to encounter Peter in just a second. But it says, while they're approaching, while they're approaching, Peter begins to have this vision just right before. And here's what, let's just continue and you'll, you'll begin to 
See, Peter's going, hey, listen, by the way, God, I'm not touching that stuff. I'm a good Jewish person. I don't do that. I don't break that. And you'll hear what he says. No, Lord. This is funny because it sounds really like Peter is having an encounter and a conversation with Jesus like he used to. Pushing back on Jesus like, no, 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 Jesus. That's not how this should work. I'm going to go. Peter's always the one that's pushing back. Peter's always the one pushing back. But as he pushed back, Peter learned a lesson. I think he learned it the day that Jesus died. When that rooster crowed the third time, I think Peter began to understand, God, I want to ask questions, but I'm also going to surrender when you move. That's exactly what he does. He says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared unpure or unclean. But then the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean. This is so important. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Then, of course, for Peter's sake, the same vision was repeated three times and the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Let me back up here for a second. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. God is painting a picture for Peter, not about food, although that's the beginning. That's, this is the step. This is the doorway into it. This isn't about food. This is about people. Because God's heart is always for people and Peter's beginning to understand something. God is trying to get my attention about something very specific here. I'm not quite sure what it is yet, but I know he's trying to get my attention. And Peter, it says, was very perplexed in verse 17. What could the vision actually mean? He knows God's doing something, but he doesn't know quite what it means. Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Now, today, you can actually go and see what we acknowledge as the traditional site of Simon the Tanner's house. In fact, I think we have a picture of it. And Simon the Tanner's house is a traditional site, so it's not actually a site that we are certain is a historical site. But what we do believe is that somewhere in this area, and this house, if we showed you the picture, is on the cliffs and we don't have a picture of it tonight, but it's on the cliffs overlooking the ocean. And so Peter's actually, this, this house has a flat roof on it. It looks a lot like it. In fact, on the door, it says, home of Simon the Tanner. A family actually lives there. They ask you not to knock on the door, but you can walk right up to the door and see where we believe, or at least traditionally is held, that this is the place that Peter had his vision. In fact, you can go see it today, 2,000 years later. You can go see where Peter has his vision. But to give you a picture, those Roman soldiers, a Roman soldier that is sent by Cornelius and his helpers and his personal aides show up at this house, standing in the street, knocking on the door after they figure out who Simon the Tanner is. Now, there's a couple things that are important here before we jump into this. Something's already happened with Peter because it says that he's been staying with Simon the Tanner for quite some time. In fact, we see that at the end of verse 9, or chapter 9. But the thing that's interesting is that Simon the Tanner's job isn't really a kosher job. He handles dead animals all the time. He does some things that are not really part of traditional Jewish life. They avoided dead animals. They dealt with them when they had to, when they would die. But there really isn't, uh, there, there really is, it's really looked down upon for them to deal with dead animals if they wanted to remain clean and pure. So something has already started to happen for Peter that he's willing to relate and have these relationships with people that maybe don't fit the exact box that he has always participated in. The thing that's so interesting and just a second, in the box that Peter places himself as a Jew is interesting because it's the exact same framework and mindset. And don't miss this. It's the exact same framework and mindset that he fought against, that he was oppressed by, by the Sadducees and the religious leaders of his time. 
The thing he hated so much, the thing he fought back with, the thing that the people pushed back on, the oppression, is the very same thought process that he has for people that aren't Jews. Now, I don't know about you, but, but for me, as I read that, I, I realize how often the very thing I look at that I don't like, I often turn around and do or apply to other people. For instance, the way that I see people when I see them on the side of the freeway. When you are on the off-ramp and the person is asking for food or money, and we see ourselves as better than them, or we see somebody who can't hold that job, or that person that just can't quite figure out how to promote, or that person that can't quite figure out how to be a great dad or a great mom, or a great husband or a great wife. And we think of ourselves as different than them, but it's the very same action that we disdain from other people doing to us. This is the same thing that's happening for Peter. And the thing for me that's been a really helpful process is something that I tell people sometimes when I see people on the side of the road. Every time I see a transient person or I see somebody that's struggling, somebody who has lost everything, who's an addict, who's forfeited their family, made a bad decision, been unfaithful, whatever it might have been, compromised in their marriage, never been able to... All those pictures, I just remind myself of, of, the, of one thing. I am no different than they are. Because you and I are only two decisions away from being those people. And Peter's going to begin to understand this and realize the error of his ways and how he's seen these people wrong. Because God, listen, God's going to change this whole conversation. He's beginning with, don't call what I call unclean, or what I've cleaned, unclean. And he's going to tease this out and help Peter understand it. Now, the thing that I think is um, so important here and the thing that strikes me in, these, in this kind of middle section here before we jump on to the next section is this, is that Peter's relationship with Jesus, with the Father, and with the Spirit is so key because none of this happens if he isn't committed to the Father's will. None of what's gonna follow after this, none of the, uh, the opportunities for Gentiles, none of this is gonna happen unless Peter, I, I'm, not a, I'm not under any illusion that God would use somebody else, but certainly in this moment, Peter makes himself available to God to be used because of his commitment to the Father's will. He is always committed at this point forward, always committed to following what God is asking him to do. He pushes back, but he always responds. You know, um, Paul teases this out in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says this. If you want to, you can read along with me. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He says this, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. And he's beginning to kind of tease this out and help us understand that. Um, and really what Jesus, or what the vision that Paul is, ha or excuse me, Peter is having, the vision that Peter is having, the same language that the angel or Jesus or God or whoever it is, is directly speaking to him, the supernatural word that he hears. Don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. The clean and unclean word is the same word same phrase that the Jews would use for Gentiles. So God is already bridging this gap here, making it really clear. In fact, later on, Paul teases this out and says this and kind of gives us, you and I, a picture of it. In verse 11 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were exiled from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises that God had made to them. 
but you lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. For Christ himself has bought you peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body he died on the cross. He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. And he did this by ending the system of the law and its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from those two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. It was never about food. As we get teenagers, remember this. This is always about hearts because it's always about hearts with God. Always about hearts. It's never about the food. It's never about the action. It's about the thing that's driving those things. It's always about people's hearts. Now, <clears throat> Peter's still confused. Starts trying to figure this out. It says this in verse 19, if you want to follow, we're going to jump back to chapter 10 in Acts. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Remember, he's just kind of had this thing. He's sitting on the rooftop, kind of just give you a little, kind of paint the picture for you. He's sitting on the rooftop of that house, of Simon Tanner's house. He's sitting there, has the vision. The vision goes away. He's sitting there totally perplexed. What just happened? What did I just see? Uh, God told me to eat unclean food, but he also, what is he doing? It says he was perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house standing outside the gate. They asked him, a man named Simon Peter was there. Meanwhile, the, the, as Peter was still puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, I have sent them. I have sent them. You know, um, the Spirit gives them just really direct, direct, direct insight. He's so clear with him. And then what Peter does, what he does is super good. I just Let me read it to you. So Peter went down. I'm the man you were looking for. They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited them to stay the night. The next day they went with them and accompanied them with some other brothers to Joppa. I want, I want to pause here before we go because we got 20 verses left and I want to make sure that we get through it. But I want to pause here for a second. Because there's something really, 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 as I read this text, as I studied, there's just something that just nailed me in here. He says this in verse 22. If you want to, you should underline it in your text. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. As I read that, the question that came through my mind was, what message do I carry? What message do you carry? Do we carry a message that creates our platform, that promotes our business, that promotes our wealth, that promotes our thing? Listen, this is a kingdom thing. It promotes our kingdom or his because this is the thing, Peter's agenda here is he has a message that he's carrying with him all the time. This is the whole point. Peter has a message that doesn't relent. That Jesus Christ died to redeem 
to heal, to restore, and to forgive sin. Be healed. Get baptized. This is his message. It doesn't matter what we do, and and I get that Peter turns into a leader in the church and he has an occupation, most likely that kind of helps him serve the church and his job, but what we do is far less relevant than the message that we carry. Because for all of us, the message is never different. The message is always the same, that Jesus is the hope and the light of the world who came to forgive sin and reconcile people back to himself. And this is the message that Cornelius is compelled by. Let me jump back to our story. But as we talk, just continue to ask yourself, what is that message? What message do you carry? Do I carry? Because Peter had already made up his mind. And that helps Peter make some decisions as he has to go forward here. In verse 24, you can carry on if you want. He says, um, they arrived in Caesarea the following day and Cornelius was waiting for them and called together all his relatives and his close friends. Anticipation. He has anticipation that God wants to do something significant. As Peter enters his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. To which makes sense if you understand him as a Roman. Because they understood that people would embody God and God would embody people and that people could be part God. And listen, there's, there's a lot here, but really what you have to understand is Peter makes a really clear statement. Peter pulls him up and says, stand up, I'm human, just like you. So they talked together and went inside where others were assembled. Peter told them, you know it, and this is where we gotta get really important. You wanna, might wanna just kind of highlight this. You might wanna come back to this. You might wanna reread this at a later time. But something so powerful happens in this moment. As Peter begins to tell them that he knows that he's better than them, but he's dealing with his heart. Here's what he said. You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. That one sentence wraps up the entirety of his issue. He saw himself as superior. He understood his way of living as superior and believed that what he had to offer was more important because of where he came from, because he had the one true God. He was a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was an inheritant of all those promises from all those times ago. But somewhere in the process, Peter and his people had forgotten this, that Abraham, the promise to Abraham is that he would be, he would be a hope and a light and a blessing to the entire world, not just one world, to the entire world, not just to one people, not just to one nation, to the entire world. This isn't unlike some of the ways that we struggle today. When we see somebody that doesn't vote the same way that we see, the person in political authority that we don't like or we do like. Listen, these, this isn't unlike that. We see ourselves as, as in opposition. And Peter walks into this guy's house seeing him as, seeing him as opposition. Don't, get the, don't miss this. We talked about this in the beginning. But there's a tension that's happening here for Peter. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He doesn't understand why God would visit this person and have give him a vision. But he's like, okay, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to be obedient. Even when it makes me uncomfortable. Even when it makes me violate my tradition. But I'm willing to listen to the creator God over my customs, over my political allegiance. Even though I know I'm going to have to answer for this, Peter's going to have to answer for this when he gets home. That's next week, just preview. Next week, Peter gets called on the carpet and has to make, uh, he has to give an account for why he did all of this. 
knowing this. Not only did he do that, Peter, if you noticed, took brothers from Joppa. He took believers with him to Cornelius' house. This is so important. He takes them to Cornelius' house. They are witnesses. Peter's done. He can't hide this. He's going in. He knew God was up to something. He was willing to leverage his reputation and his relationships to be obedient to what God was asking him to do because God was up to something with him. He says, but God has shown me, in verse 27, excuse me, 28, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. This is bigger than you and I have time tonight to tease out. This is huge for a Jewish person to say, I have come to see that no one is impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me, why have you sent for me? Now, Cornelius is going to tell him his story. Verse 30 through 33, he begins to tell everybody his story. He tells, reaccounts his experience with the angel to Peter. And I think the thing that we have to stop and think about is when he goes home, as we talked about, he's going to have to answer some questions. Did you really eat with a Gentile? Did you really go in their house? Did you really associate with that minority person? Did you really associate with that person with that alternative lifestyle that the majority of the people that you go to church with or you hang out with or your people are friends with wouldn't be okay with? And Peter's response, based on what he says here, is just simple. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Here's what he's saying. I no longer need to see other people as not people of God and people of God. I need to, and this is a message for you and I, I think, I need to begin to understand all people as children of God. That all people are made in the image of God. And that's what gives them their value, not not how they worship. There's a right way to worship, but this isn't the issue. Their value doesn't come in how they're worshiped. Their value comes in who their creator is that placed a little bit of himself in them because they are made in his image like I am. Now, we're going to jump ahead to chapter, or verse 34 because we've already heard that part of the story. And here's what happens. He says in verse 34, after he's done, Cornelius is done telling him his account, he says this, I see very clear that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God. This is so important. This is a message to you and I. To peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea and began in Galilee. After John began preaching the message of baptism, he begins to account the gospel message. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then when he went around doing things and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on that third day. Then God allowed him to appear 
not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the appointed one of God to be the judge. This is so important. He's setting Jesus on a pedestal, that Jesus is now the one that determines rightness with God. Not just, God isn't that, that long gone, far away being, that God, that the person just doesn't, the real person that I walked with, that walked this earth, the real human, this is so huge. He is changing the entire game when he says this. Jesus, the person I know, is going to be the one that judges me, and I know what he needs to see me do. And he finishes by saying this, that Jesus is going to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. And he is the one that all the prophets, my people, testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him shall have their sins forgiven through his name. This is so good. He begins to tease out a couple ideas here that I think God wants for each of us. First is this, is that in verse 38, he kind of, unpacks what's happening, what God's call for us, that we got to do good, that we've got to live right, we've got to love others. This is like kind of the package deal. How we live with Jesus is so important because Jesus' commandment to us, and, and Peter's just pointing back to the gospel message here, right? Listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second commandment is just as great as the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good. Live right. Love others. And do it without expecting anything back. This is kind of the message here. This is what Peter's kind of jumping into. And this is where he kind of goes after he's done. This is great. And verse 44, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Listen, the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles too. What they're seeing is so important because the next verse here is going to just kind of wrap the whole thing up. What they're seeing is the exact same experience that happened on Pentecost for the church in Jerusalem. The very same thing is happening. And this is the very end of what happens for Peter. Watch this. In this moment, Peter says, the exact same thing. Luke's recording the exact same thing happens, poured out on, and get this, not the Jews, not the religious elite, not the perfect, but a person that they should dislike, a person that doesn't have favor according to their old laws, a person that isn't a Jew at all, a Gentile, where you've been pouring out himself on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Here's the thing that's so important about the speaking in tongues thing. Some of you might say, why did they put that in there? Why is that? Here, here's the real thing. We're pretty certain that they wouldn't have had faith in what had happened with Peter and these guys, and they wouldn't have acknowledged that they were right in right standing with God and they were believers if they had had this happen. If this hadn't happened, if they hadn't seen the expression of the Holy Spirit falling on them, this is where this expression happens. This isn't a, an indication that it's the only way for that to happen. That's not what he's pointing out here. He's pointing this out to say, this is what happened to those who were at Pentecost. This is what's happening to them. And God is moving the same in the Gentiles as he's moving in the Jews. Because God begins to pave the way for all mankind, all humanity, to begin to experience himself. To begin to receive the free gift of grace that came through Jesus Christ as the redemption for all the world. 
Not for some, but for all the world. And I love this. This is kind of how he finishes off. Luke kind of puts a, puts just kind of a point at the end. Then Peter asks, can anyone object to them being baptized now? Now, remember, he's talking to his believer brothers that are with him. Because they're going to have to give an account. And he's going to say, hey, well, I asked my believing brothers. Here's what he says. Can anyone object to their being baptized now? Now that we have seen them receive the Holy Spirit just as they did. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterwards, Cornelius asked them to stay with him for several days. Now, just a couple thoughts, and then we'll start taking some questions. Peter, regularly through his life, is interrupted. Peter's interrupted on the shoreline by Jesus. Peter's interrupted throughout his entire experience with Jesus. Peter's agenda is constantly interrupted. But I don't think that it's an accident that we capture that in the Gospels and we capture that in the Acts. I think it's a lesson that God wants to interrupt our stories, that he wants to interrupt our lives to accomplish his tasks. Because he wants this to be the good news for all people. The way that he talks about in verse 36, the good news for all people, he wants it to be his news to be good news, but he wants to use us to do it. You notice I pointed at this just earlier on, but when the angel comes, it doesn't give Cornelius the message of the gospel. He goes and pulls a person. By the way, Simon, Simon is closer there's another person who knows the gospel, who potentially walked with Jesus, who's closer, who's in, this is so important, in Caesarea, but God doesn't use him. Because here's what I think. This is just my opinion. I think God wanted to use, and I said this at the very beginning, wanted to use Peter into Cornelius' life, but he wanted to use Cornelius into Peter's life as much as he wanted to do the, the opposite. I think God was more concerned about connecting hearts and helping them break down their prejudice, break down his racism, break down the tension, the hate, the frustration, the bipolar frustration that they had with each other. Listen, because what they had was far greater. It involved the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world. It transcended all of what God was doing or what, what people were doing that moment. It transcended Caesar and it began to, and just get this. We started the message. This is, in 35 years, Jesus' life is being talked about entire, throughout the entire Roman world. A hundred years later, crosses are being hung up in Rome. And it's so important we get this. God is moving in the midst of things that doesn't feel like he's moving in. If you had asked an Israelite if they ever thought that they would see God set them free from Rome, and that a Roman, or excuse me, that a, an old Jewish rabbi would reshape the entire planet or that these guys in Jerusalem, while they're under persecution from the temple, are trying to find freedom, trying to find their way forward. The early ecclesia, they would have never believed it. A couple last thoughts. Peter carried a message. I said this earlier. His life was literally a message after he met Jesus. His message was about his Savior. The question I think we have to ask ourselves is what message are we carrying? And does our life have a message to it? And is our life interruptible? That's hard. That requires what we said a little bit earlier, that God be available, or that we be available, excuse me, to God, that we make ourselves approachable to God and that we allow our lives to be interrupted. 
Now, what happens in chapter 11, and then we'll take some questions, is that Peter has to go home and defend himself. And kind of the teaser is that later in chapter 15 at the council, the Jerusalem council, James, Jesus' brother, comes to his defense and makes this insane statement, one that should penetrate our hearts and to each other's, that we should not make it hard or make it difficult for Gentiles to come to Jesus. Now, um, this is a lot. We packed in 48 verses in 45 minutes. So what I recognize is I probably skipped some things that you guys have questions about, and I probably ran past some things that I should have teased out more that we should have expanded on. So we'll take the next few minutes and take some questions. I think John's going to join me up here. Um, right now, if you want to send your questions in, you can send them into our chat team there, or you can send them online, or you can actually uh, send them in. If you'd like to, if you have to, you can call into the office as well. But Yeah. All right. Well, as you mentioned, Shane, that is a huge chapter, historically huge chapter. Things that happen that have affected how we see the church that we never really think about. But um, for a Jew in the first century, they were um, points of conflict, points where they would have, uh, probably a lot of Jews at that point, broke fellowship with Christians yeah. and walked away. Um, so uh, we do have some questions. They're coming in. Um, how do I know the difference between God's will for my life and what I think would be good to do, especially if it aligns with God's word? So uh, I wondered if this would happen because one of the things that um, we talk about really clear and one of the things really clear is he has a message that he has a purpose in his life. And I think the, the funny thing is, is uh, I think we all wish that God would show up and talk to us like he did Peter. Uh, I think a lot of us say things like, if Jesus walked with me and I could see his face and touch his hands and I could do all this, I would have a message too. Um, but I think the thing that's so important is that Jesus makes the declaration and that we see it unfold in Acts actually, which is, hey, listen, by the way, I'm gonna leave so the one greater than me can come. Because he said, I wanna be present with you. And as Jesus paves the way for the Holy Spirit to come, we have access to the Father's heart and all times. He's walking with us. And so the question I think had something to do with how do I know the difference between what God's will for my life and what I think would be good to do, even if it aligns with God's word. I think the real issue comes back to what Peter said to answer a question. I think the real question comes back to what Peter was willing to do and what we said at the very end. Are you willing to be interrupted? Because listen, God is in the business of moving people. And if you're willing to be moved, I think the thing that happens the most for us is when we begin to move and we're interruptible, if you use that link, God wants to do something with that. He can do that. We all know this. It's far easier to steer a car while it's moving than we do if it's sitting still. And I think that analogy works with God too, is if you're taking steps and you're being obedient and you're mm -hmm. seeking counsel around you, um, God's going to reorder your steps if you're willing to let him interrupt you. And so following um, something that's good, it's in line with scripture and line with what you feel in your heart. Listen, Peter always and the, and the disciples always went back to being still and being alone with God because that was the model that Jesus left for them. They would go be still and be alone with God. So just because something looks good and the people around you tell you it's good, sometimes it's not the right thing for us. What we have to do is stop and be still and let God speak those things in our heart and find space. We fast, we pray, we create lots of margin for God to have his will and his way with us. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the things 
Jesus calls us out, because a lot of us would say, um, if I had a personal walk with him, if I saw him face to face, if I saw the scars or whatever, and before he even died, he said, if even somebody came back from the dead and preached this message, a lot of you wouldn't believe. believe it. Yeah. And the truth is, that's a lot of us. You know, we said we would if he was right there with us, but not necessarily true. Mm. Um, and so, like I said, take, take steps of obedience that you can. Um, all right. Uh, Mara, Mar, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Mora, I get uh, doing good without expecting anything back, but how do I make sure I'm not being taken advantage of? Wouldn't that be unhealthy? Yeah. Um, when we're talking about doing good, and, and I don't know that um, maybe your experience or your, your fear, well, if I'm really bold, let me say what I, I think if Peter and the disciples were sitting here, they would look at us and tell us we have far too much fear for provision. And we're far too concerned with people taking advantage of us. Jesus doesn't tell us to do that. In fact, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it really clear that we're supposed to, to be vulnerable, that we're supposed to do the right thing at all costs, even if it costs us something. Being taken advantage of, um, I think that every one of, this is going to be a bit of a leap, Mara, but every one of the, the apostles was, was beaten and suffered for the gospel, I think that's being taken advantage of. And I think that's the hard part is that we don't in our current context, and we just finished our series on suffering a few weeks ago, but I think in our current context, our association with suffering and with following Jesus are, are far too separated. I think when you begin to integrate those things, understand that suffering is part of it. Well, God may not directly cause suffering. He allows suffering to happen to move his, his journey forward. Um, and what he wants to accomplish in us. I think sometimes our, I mean, you go back to what Jesus said. He said, listen, why are you worried about what's gonna happen tomorrow? Today has enough trouble of its own. The birds even don't worry about what they're gonna eat, that the heavenly father feeds them. He's gonna feed you. And so I think the fear is, is that we need to take care of ourselves. And if we're willing to allow God to be our provider and we see him as our provider, if he's asking us to do something, to take a risk, if somebody chooses to take advantage of those things, uh, I kind of like what John Calvin says. He says that it appears on the outside that people are, ble are being blessed. Um, bad people are being blessed, like bad people are being honored and that God is giving them something. But the thing he says is that actually as those people are experiencing that blessing, they're actually destroying themselves. It looks like they're rich and they're wealthy and they're bad people. But, and so the question is, why are good people prosperous? And John, would say, John Calvin says in reply, it's not that they're being blessed. They're actually destroying another part of their life. They're just looking blessed on the outside. And so I think the thing we have to keep in mind is that somebody making those decisions is going to hurt themselves. And we don't want that to happen. But at the same time, sometimes we have to take a risk to let God move in our circumstances. Because if we don't take a risk, could, could Peter have been taken advantage of in this situation? He probably could have. He could have ridden a horse 36 miles one way and 36 miles the other way. That's how far it was from Joppa back to... Um, Caesarea, and could he have been humiliated by going to uh, this Gentile house? He could have, but he heard and he responded and he listened really clearly to what God was saying. And I think that's the difference between worrying about somebody taking advantage of you and not. If it's unwise, don't do it. But if God's telling you to do it, then let him carry that thing forward. Some of the greatest movements that we've ever experienced, whether it's a church movement or whether it's God moving inside of people, have happened because people were willing to do what didn't seem right 
not that violated scripture or what God wanted, but what didn't seem wise, and they took a risk, and God moved in those things. The first church is a perfect example of that. Yeah, you look at, you look at both Paul, Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, and then Peter's experience right here. They were willing to, in some way, turn their back completely on what they thought was God's will for their lives, and yep. pivot on a dime, and change directions at risk of their reputation, their life, uh, their ministry, everything that they had. And they're like bold, big stories. It's like yeah. uh, earth-shattering moments, but, but I think the whole point to Peter sitting on a roof in these small moments, and when you see Jesus go retreat with the Father, is that, that he's trying to create those aha moments frequently yeah. with people through our rhythms, through how we live, through the space and the margin we create in our lives for God to speak, move, and interrupt us, as we said tonight. Yeah. yeah. Um, James, this is a question that I've heard a lot because I think that the language that the, the Bible uses can create a disconnect. He says, uh, James asks, Cornelius was a centurion who was said to fear God, but First John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out all fear. So what does it mean to fear God? No, that's a great question. So one of the things that we misunderstand sometimes in these texts is, is language. So obviously this text was primarily written in Greek, uh, when it was written, um, and the surviving manuscripts today that we have are in Greek. But when we understand fear, this is, this is not so much a tremble, uh, I'm, I'm scared you're going to hurt me. It was a recognition of greatness and awe. It was an inspiring moment. It's like when you, when you see something that's overpowering, and maybe it, for you it might be in nature, you see something that's awe-inspiring would be kind of like the word that we would use a lot of times. This is the kind of experience. That he was in awe of who God was. He was recognizing that God was the creator of all, that he was creator God, and he's having this aha moment. So when we see that a God-fearing person throughout Scripture, a lot of times it's not that they're fearful of God striking them dead or that they're fearful in the sense of, um, like you're referring to, that perfect love casts out fear. This fear is a healthy fear. And this healthy fear is really driven from a recognition that God is creator God and that he has all power. Yet somewhere in the moment, he stopped and thought of us. And I think that's the thing that you see when it talks about fear it has very little to do with being terrified or fearful of it, but in awe and inspired and recognizing the power that lays with God, I think is the thing that, the way I always think of it is, uh, <clears throat> the first time you see, like as a guy, the first time you see a race car, you think of awe and power, right? <laughs> and you, as a kid, you start driving a matchbox car around like my three-year-old does, you push a matchbox car around. And then the first time you see a race car go by, that's awe-inspiring, it's powerful. It's a little fearful, because it's strong and it's big, and it is a little bit precarious. But the thing I think that is so synonymous with God is that, that he is big, powerful, and it's awe-inspiring. And you encounter him, and you see that Moses, when he sees him on the mm. on uh, you know Mount Sinai, it's like he trembled. He couldn't even look at him because of just his presence was overwhelming. And I think that's it. This is an awe and, a, and an inspiring thing, not so much a fear of God crushing or hurting him, but he's right. being drawn to the Father's heart. And he's when he gets close, and like we all do, we should be in, in awe of who God is and that he wants to be close to us. Yeah, that's good. Um, this one... I'm not sure if this is, I'm, we may have to talk to you, Daniel, offline and, okay. and do some uh, personal uh, spiritual counseling. Uh, he says, what would you say to someone that feels conflict in their spirit because of tension and opportunity and calling? Where's the line to be obedient and when to stand up? It sounds like maybe there's two different questions there, um, but 
let's talk about the first part there. What would you say to someone that feels conflict in their spirit because of tension and opportunity and calling? Um, I would say that almost every great act that's ever happened in any human's life was the result of tension. If there's not tension, then, then something's not happening because if God's not pulling us away from old nature, trying to change us, heal us, restore us, and pull us away from those things or pull us away from something we identify with, a job, a career, a calling, if there's not tension in that, um, something's not right. And if it's too easy, and, and I will say this, I see people that make a calling in ministry or to the mission field too easy sometimes. It's like this, it's almost an escape instead of sitting in the tension. Um, for me, that was probably my story. I, I Early on as a, as like a young adult, I always thought I would end up in the mission field. And that was like the easy way. I was going to stay with YWAM. I was going to go and, I mean, to be clear, I was in YWA in Hawaii, so there was definitely that draw. <laughs> um, but I got offered a staff position there, and the hardest thing for me to do was come home, and then the hardest thing has been for me to stay home because I always thought I would go. And now I do get to go. I go on teams with our church and stuff, but I don't live there, yeah. and I always thought I would live there. And so for me, Daniel, the tension in that is where I live because I know God is doing what he wants to do because it, it, it's, it's pulling on me and it's reshaping me to stay obedient to what he wants what he has for us. So I think a lot of times when we talk about that tension, um, the tension is important. If you're living in the tension, you're going to find God's presence often. That's been at least my experience. Yeah. As far as the second part of the question, uh, where's the line to be obedient and when to stand up? Um, that is a very interesting question that probably has much more to do with context than it does just kind of black and white about obedience and yeah. standing up. I think context probably is huge in that one. Yeah. Um, John says, in what ways does this passage encourage us to, de- to befriend and minister to the marginalized in our culture? For example, immigrants, homosexuals, transgenders, uh, those who are homeless, etc. I think, <laughs> listen, I think if you were Jewish and you were walking around in 60 AD when this happened or 70 AD when these stories happened or maybe a little bit earlier, with Peter, or with Paul, I think the thing you would have realized is that we were those marginalized people. (laughs) We would have never been part of that. Unless you're Jewish, you would never been part of that in crowd. So does this encourage us? Yeah, you heard me talk about that a little bit, John. I think, I hope. The entire point is is that that there isn't an elect, there isn't a a special group anymore that nobody's seen as unclean. And I know somebody else had a question about the clean and unclean, then what about evil people? But what the really the picture is, is that that God wasn't accessible unless you were Jewish. That was the whole point. And so you aren't, God isn't accessible to those who are outside the Jewish faith because they had the perfect faith and you had to follow that space. When Jesus begins to move, he comes to make it for all people. And so the unclean and impure thing really has to do with God recognizing, or excuse me, with the Jews recognizing that God came for all people, for the Jews to be a blessing to the entire world. And no longer was it just isolated. No longer was it just about the Jews, but it was for the entire world. And so when you kind of see it unfold that way, I I think that you and I in this context, Cornelius represents the LGBTQ community. Cornelius represents the homeless, the transgender, the immigrant, he, he embodies all of those people in this text. And I don't want to tease it out and I want to take it too far out of context, but it's representing this thing that when God calls you to go into a space, God calls you to go into a space, it's super important yeah. that we respond to that. Um, some examples come to mind, but for time's sake, I'll walk away from them. But 
even just the relationship that over the last couple of years, um, our pastors developed with the LGBTQ community in, uh, in Sacramento right. and the relationship, yeah. how that has actually come into play, even in our current context as we're trying to figure out how to open and yeah. seeing that God moves in really particular ways that way. Absolutely. This is a call to go to those who are seen as, um, in a lot of ways, I think the big C church have isolated some of the communities that you mentioned, John, like the Jews that isolated everybody else in the world and seen themselves as elite. And I think what Peter is saying is that I'm no better than you. I am like you. And I'm recognizing that. And it's taken me a long time, but I'm figuring it yeah. out. Yeah, it's super dangerous when the church starts to look at a certain group of people and say mm-hmm. they're, they're, not, they're outside God's yeah. grace or they're outside the possibility of redemption. You know, yep. And we don't, we give ourselves permission as the Jews did to, to say, I don't need to even try. And it's even worse when, uh, it's easier, right, when, when, when people literally hate us. And I think that's the hardest part, is that there's no distinction whether we're loved or hated. Yeah. The distinction is you go where you're called, even if you're hated. And I think the, the fact that the, that the apostles give up their life is a perfect example of that, that they go where they're hated. Yeah. And even if they hate, they still love. And I think that's the messaging that we get lost, that it's not, it's not coward to lose your life, it's not coward to be hated, It's not coward to not be the loudest voice in the room. In fact, the most powerful voice sometimes is the one of kindness, the one of thoughtfulness, and the one that represents Mm -hmm. how Jesus would respond to people, which so often was in a very opposite spirit than what people would anticipate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is the one you were referencing, and I think it works as a good follow-up to that last question. This is from Jim and Terry, who say, if no one is impure, how do you explain evil people? Is it the spirit that is evil and not the person? Hmm. Interesting. I don't have that one in front of me. Can you read it again? Yeah. Uh, if no one is impure, how do you explain evil people? Oh, the evil people, yeah. Is it the spirit that is evil and not the person? No, so I think this is important. Um, when we started talking through uh, the, evil, the evil part here, the impure... I think that, and I kind of touched on this just a second ago. Yeah. What I think the thing is important is that if no one is impure, how do you explain evil people? I, I think that this is recognizing not uh, goodness or badness as much as it's recognizing the availability of people to access the Father and have relationship with God. So for the Jews, they always saw themselves as the only people that could access God. They were the only people that had the one true right way to believe, to worship. And that, in fact, you see this with Jesus and he ends up in the debate with the woman at the well. They, you know, we're the ones that worship right and you don't know. And there's just kind of this back and forth. So this isn't about evil or good or bad. This is about what was seen as appropriate for God's people and what were not. And what Jesus is saying here, I think to Peter, the most clear way you could articulate this is, this has nothing to do with evil. This has everything to do with access. That there was a right way to access God and Jesus came to say that I'm gonna pave a road of grace to access God. It's gonna come through me, but it's gonna be for all people and for all that access me. But it's going to come through me. This is really important. He's not saying that all the rules are out or whatever because I know somebody else had a question about the law. The real question comes not so much about evil. This is about access. When he's talking about the food and stuff, he's trying to create an access point in Peter's heart to, for Peter to be willing to look past his prejudice, 
for him to look past those things and recognize that God's heart, as I said before, was built into Cornelius as well. That God was actually planted his image, that they were made in the image of God as well. That it wasn't just exclusive to the Jews. That Jesus had come to let access happen to the Father's heart and to himself, to all people. So this isn't an issue of evil or good or bad. This is an issue of access and who God is seeing as his children. Mm -hmm. There's no longer an isolation of children of Israel as being the called ones, but that God was making himself available to all people. Yeah. I think that really is the, the, the all people, the all people thing is really the big question. And I think, I think too, Paul would say, you know, in Romans, he would say, um, everyone's evil. You know, that's, it's, yeah. um, it's not that, it's not that. Uh, one set of people is more evil than another. We're For all, all of sin, yeah. yeah. That's the great point, yeah. Um, Lourdes says, would I be doing the will of God without me knowing that I'm doing it? Um, I think you probably could be. I hope we all are <laughs> without knowing yeah. it. But um, I think the real question is, is intentionality. Are we accidentally ending up in the right space? We don't accidentally end up anywhere. Um, we have to make decisions about how we get there and partner with the heart of God to do that. And so I think sometimes when we say, are we accidentally there? I don't think we're ever accidentally there. I think God is sovereign and moving in those moments. But yeah. I think the question for us, all of us, is what, what Peter's doing. He's creating space, especially in chapter 10. He's creating space for himself to encounter God. He goes up to pray. He's being still. He has great rhythms in his life about being still, working, letting God move inside of And then he creates this moment. Don't, don't miss this. Because this moment doesn't happen if he doesn't create space for God to move. And yeah. I think I used the language earlier of interrupt. But if you don't create the space for God to interrupt, he can't interrupt. He's not going to offend you until you want to be offended. And this is what happens for Peter. Peter positions himself. He should have been offended. Every other Jew would have been offended. But he's not. Because he positioned his heart in a place that he was accepting of God's interruptions. Because he learned that with Jesus when Jesus kept interrupting him. He interrupts him when he's fishing. He interrupts him on this. Oh, that's good, yeah. Lots of different places, so, right. yeah. Um, KJV 1611 says, <laughs> in Acts 10.43, it says, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. So remission. And in Colossians 1.14, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of sins. King James, are these saying pretty much the same thing as far as forgiveness of our sins? Or forgiving our sins. Oh, you're not going to answer any of the questions? You're just going to ask them? Me? Yeah. No, that's not my yeah, job. Yeah, they're saying basically I don't the have to thing. know anything. I just sit up here and read. <laughs> you have a lot of paper on your wall too, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, basically this is talking about um, the exact same thing. The healing, forgiveness of sin, the reconciling of people back to God um, through Jesus Christ. That's effectively it. Um, the King James Version, as you're reading it there, it gets a little bit wordy, but yes, um, Basically, it referring to the same thing. Same Without thing. teasing out the language of it and stuff for right. time's sake, yes, they're effectively talking about the same thing. Andy says, I understand the purpose of the vision being about people and not food. This is, this is something that really, it's good that it came up. You, you mentioned it briefly mm -hmm. as you were teaching, but um, he says, but did God actually change the law when he called clean what he had previously called unclean? So the answer is no, and I don't want to kind of just be simple, but think back to what Jesus said, that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So there's a lot of debate about this and how you want to tease this out in theology. I'll kind of share my perspective and you can have your own. But um, there, there's kind of a dual covenant theology and there's a single covenant theology. If you're a dual covenant theology, 
believe in dual covenant theology, you believe that when Jesus came and he overcame sin and death and he fulfilled the law, that he sealed up what was the old covenant. And the old covenant was fulfilled as if a contract, and this is where Jesus said he fulfilled. If you fulfill a contract, and there's a lot of theological arguments about why some of these things are right or wrong, and I'm not here to debate those, but just kind of give you a, a big picture here. I think it was Andy. Um, the, the kind of the short-term picture is when Jesus came to fulfill the law, he fulfilled the law and that contract was fulfilled. So it's no longer part of the equation moving forward. This is how some uh, dual covenant theologians would argue that there's, there's no longer a covenant to be managed anymore. If you're a single covenant person, you believe that there's been one full grace covenant over all of time and eternity. And so when Jesus comes, that he renews a, the covenant for all people with Jesus moving forward. And so to answer your question, no, he doesn't change the law. He fulfills the law. That's what Jesus would say. He didn't abolish it. He didn't change the law. He fulfilled the law. But what he was trying to do with Peter in this moment is Peter and the guys hadn't quite figured out the full thing of what he meant by he came to fulfill the law. They thought, they knew he meant that all Hebrew people and all Jewish people, excuse me, Jewish people would have access to the Father through the forgiveness of sins. And they understood that all of the prophetic words that spoke about those things spoke and pointed right back to Jesus. But they thought that those words were for the Jews. And so this is God saying, hey, listen, my covenant, my new covenant is for all people, mm -hmm. not just for the Jews. And so he's not changing the law at all. He's, in fact, he's saying, listen, I fulfilled that old law. Those things were, this is my way to begin to, the process for my, my grace covenant for all people to get moved into the next season for all people to have this access to this. And it's, remember this, when, what Luke actually says this, when God saw the time was right, he sent his son. And so he's like, listen, the time is right, it, the time is now to fulfill the covenant and then release and create an opportunity for all people to be followers of Jesus now or to become close. So this isn't about an unclean or a clean thing. This isn't about sin or not sin. This is about sin no longer being about our piety. This is important. Our vertical relationship with God about how we act towards God. But in fact, Jesus begins to change the paradigm and begins to say, how you act towards my children one to another is actually the thing that makes me okay with you and not, not okay with you. Your sin, if you go back and you read, sin is no longer about eating or anything. Sin is about hurting yourself and hurting other people. It's no longer about following laws to be pure. It's about honoring the image of God and other people and honoring the image of God inside of yourself. And Paul mm -hmm. teaches that and teases that out a lot when he talks about being a temple and yeah. he talks about that a lot with the uh, Corinthians. Um, Edward says, uh, how did Cornelius, a Roman centurion, know God and learn to be a God-fearing man before he met Peter? That is a great question yeah. that we do not have any historical understanding of how. <laughs> we don't know. The, the, the history is not there. Um, my guess is that he was influenced by the Jews is my guess. Uh, it said that he actually would go and pray. If you read the text close, he, he would go and he would pray at the temple. So he was, in, he was impressed with the God of the Jews. God was still moving there and he was impressed by what, what they were happening. And yeah. um, so somewhere along those lines, yeah. Yeah, and throughout Scripture, there, there are select, not a lot, but there are a few people who are, who very follow, select, yeah. what's that? Very select, small groups of people, yeah. Very small groups of people who follow God, mm -hmm. even though they're not ethnically Jewish. Yep. Yeah, right. They do. And um, very few of them were accepted into the Jewish communities as well. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, there's a Gentile court in the temple. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, this is a good follow-up to, and it's good to clarify uh, to what you said a couple of minutes ago. Um, Jay asks, does God support the LGBTQ? I was under the impression the Bible said different. So um, I'm going to assume that the question is, does God support the LGBTQ lifestyle? And I think um, tonight's not the place to unpack all that. But in short, God makes it pretty clear what his expectations are, uh, particularly in the New Testament, really clear about what his expectations are for lifestyle. Um, But to support the people, I think God would say that, just like he said to Peter, this isn't about uh, a salvation thing. This is about a desire thing for your life to be lived well. So to answer your question, direct, because I think far too many people don't answer those things correctly. I think God loves people from all places, does not see a distinction between sin, hurting themselves, hurting ourselves, or hurting other people. But what I think he's trying to say is that there's a better way for us to live. There's a way that I've designed that is important. And, I've, and I think how we express this, how we tease this out, and how we talk this is really important. And I don't want to flippantly answer this question, yeah. because it's, it's really weighted. But I think the real question is, is was I trying to give the impression that the Bible supports the LGBTQ lifestyle? I'm not making that argument at all. What, what was being asked earlier in the other question, I think, was, is this gateway to us being willing to go to places that are unpopular, that are not, not seen as kind of really appropriate places for us to go to care for people and to take Jesus to them? Is that, is that this group of people? And they kind of listed all those people and they listed the LGBTQ community. Yeah. To which I said, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, this is a call to go to the places that are unpopular, unfamiliar, even hostile, I might say. Go to hostile places to, to share the gospel. But this isn't about so much about a lifestyle affirmation thing as much as making Jesus available to people and going with your message that Peter seems to have all the time, which is that Jesus is the hope of the world and he wants to call you back to himself and give you hope in life. Right. That's, yeah, well said. There's not, a, there's not a group of sinners that God has said, don't worry about them. Yeah. Or they're outside Absolutely. my grace or, yeah. you know, I don't really want them. Mm-hmm. So really important to make that distinction. So I think we're out of time. Um, Shane, really appreciate the, the, um, the conversation, really appreciate the study. Um, I just want to remind everybody I know that right now, day-to-day really is the, is the status of our updates. And so Pastor Dan has been so good about posting every single weekday in his devotionals. Uh, if you subscribe to our emails for updates as well, you're going to be able to get those from on wallupdates.com, W-O-L-updates.com. And uh, so before we go, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll dismiss. So Father, we're just thankful for this, uh, this passage. This is so foundational to our whole lives. I mean, as it's been said so many times, but um, it bears repeating that we wouldn't even be part of this whole thing if it weren't for this chapter, if Peter hadn't been obedient, if Peter, like Shane said, hadn't created rhythms and space in his life and, and had that relationship with God where he knew the voice of Jesus so clearly that even when he was being asked to do something so far outside of his experience that he knew it was Jesus and he was ready to say yes. And so, Father, I, I pray that we would have those rhythms as well, God, that we would know your voice so clearly, God, that we would spend so much time in your presence, so much time listening and reading your word and, and worshiping you, God, that we would know your voice and we would be, uh, we would be interruptible. God, that you could, you could shake us, you could turn us, that we'd be willing to change direction when you ask. 
So Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your church um, worldwide. God, just speak to us in such clear ways during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks so much for being with us. God bless you, and we'll see you over the weekend.